I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Neon, the history behind pop culture. This time, it's the big one. It's Star Wars Episode 4, A New Hope, which means, of course, we're going to be talking about Nazis and Samurai. We have been here for three and a half hours. How many different ways do you want me to tell the same story? Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty good place. I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot? As your leader, I encourage you from time to time, but always in a respectful manner, to question my logic. Now to run a computer check on this tape and the professor. Dodge this. The tracks go off in this direction. So, where to begin? On the big granddaddy of pop culture. Well, I think perhaps a good place to start is where does it sit within cinema history? In the 1970s, cinema was changing. Going back a few decades, you had the studio system, where studios basically groomed stars, uh, but those stars had to therefore be in the studio's movies. The stars didn't get to pick which movies they went into. It, It led to various bits of resentment. And the person who apparently broke the studio system was, of all people, Sean Connery. You see, Sean Connery had been James Bond, And then he finished being James Bond and they got George Lazenby in to do On Her Majesty's uh, Secret Service. 
and uh, it was a bit of a flop. And so they went back to Sean Connery and said, yeah, we, you're out of contract and everything, but we really, really need you to come back and make a James Bond film. So that was the first time an actor actually had the upper hand and he was able to start commanding a better salary and it led to other actors wanting to get the same deal. The point is that there was a certain way to do films and in the 1960s in particular, what cinema was worried about, apart from <laughs> apart from Sean Connery, as it turns out, uh, was also the fact that the rise and rise of TV. People weren't coming to the cinema like they used to, and they therefore wanted to try and get people to come back in by showing bigger and bigger spectacle. It's why we get some of the really big sweeping westerns of the age. It's why we get some of the most epic World War II movies and some of the biggest musicals and, and sword and sandal epics. These are all an attempt to try and push back on the fact that I can watch something entertaining on TV. We're in a similar kind of place now, actually, with things like Netflix. But anyway... The point is that by the 1970s, studios were generally in a little bit of a rut. They were old-fashioned, bit directionless. They weren't quite sure what to do. And so there was this new bunch of up-and-coming directors who had these really interesting ideas. Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, and of course, George Lucas. These directors were all largely friends with each other as well, and they shared ideas and swapped around uh, um, concepts, etc., etc. And what they were able to do was really shake up the film genre. And if you like, the 1970s is very much the decade of the director. These people with specific images and ideas and then turning them all into new and wonderful movies, such as Jaws, such as The Godfather, and such as Star Wars as well. Sci-fi was not big. The, the, the most recent well-known science fiction movie was 2001 A Space Odyssey in the late 1960s, and that was a flop when it came out. It took years to recoup its money. So therefore, when George Lucas said that he had an idea of kind of like a space opera, more of a kind of space western, really, than pure science fiction. It was not greeted with much in the way of, of interest. Many actors didn't want to get involved. Alec Guinness only begrudgingly took the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi if he was able to get a cut of the, uh, of the profits and also continuing profits from some of the any other movies he was to star in. This was to be the biggest financial windfall of Alec Guinness's career, uh, but he absolutely hated Star Wars the movie. He, he very much saw it as something beneath him. Uh, there was one child who ran up to him at one point in the 1980s and said, uh, you know, I've watched Star Wars more than 300 times. Can I please have your autograph? And Alec Guinness said, I'll only give it to you if you don't watch it ever again. And the child burst into tears, apparently. What a dilemma! What a dilemma there! Boo, Alec Guinness. Uh, he's a national treasure, though. Anyway, the point was that if you ever have an opportunity to look at some of the, uh, the rough cuts of Star Wars, some of the stuff that hasn't been polished digitally later... You can tell it was in trouble. And indeed, when when it was shown by George Lucas, when a rough cut was shown by George Lucas to some of these other directors, you know, like Steven Spielberg, etc., 
While Spielberg got it, he understood the potential. All these other well-known directors went, that is a mess of a movie. And we'll come on to a little bit more about what they needed to change and how they sort of saved it in the edit uh, a little bit later on. But instead, I want to go back to the influences of Star Wars, because again, it teaches us a bit about history and perhaps not necessarily obvious history. Now, I've already mentioned this in an earlier podcast uh, about Raiders of the Lost Ark, about how there were these serialized uh, adventures on in the 40s and 50s. So you would go to the cinema and you might watch for 20 minutes, 25 minutes, a little bit of a story, an ongoing story like Buck Rogers, like Flash Gordon. And if you ever get a chance to see the 1940s Flash Gordon and see the opening scrawl of Flash Gordon... Well, George Lucas just lifted that, and that's the opening scrawl that you get at the beginning of Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. And, you know, it, it's just this little couple of paragraphs to tell you what's going on. And it's all done to some rousing music, and it's all done with a dark background, because that's what the technology could deal with in the 1940s and still look pretty good in the 1970s. So... What a cheat that is. But anyway, the idea is of this sort of rip-roaring, just keep going, constant momentum. And that's really what Star Wars is about. I've heard uh, George Lucas say it's it's a movie about forward motion. It's just, you know, keep going, keep going. And indeed, one of the easiest special effects shots, that sort of jump into hyperspace where suddenly all the dots of stars turn into lines. It's apparently very easy to do, but it just gives you this sense of speed. And I've heard a few people say that actually to the modern eye, you know, if you get a modern 10-year-old to sit in front of the original Star Wars, they might find it slower than some other movies. And I take their point, but really this idea of fast edits and pace kind of starts with Star Wars and we've been copying it ever since. But it wasn't just Flash Gordon that George Lucas was copying. There's a wonderful bit of cross-pollination going on between Japan and America and have been going on for decades. You see, there was a, a, a young man in Japan before World War II called Akira Kurosawa, and he fell in love with Western movies. And he actually wrote an entire uh, essay in film school about how stilted Japanese cinema was in comparison to what was going on in the West. And... Uh, you know, he, he eventually, Akira Kurosawa, obviously very, very famous. He evolved his film style. But then there was this little thing called World War II. And so he had to make some propaganda movies. So that wasn't going to that that wasn't going to help his career long term. And then on top of that, America ends up um, occupying Japan after World War II, which stops them doing any kind of movie to do with imperial past, which meant no samurai movies. However, Akira Kurosawa was very much brought up and, and loved the Westerns. And once you know that, you can see that in his classic Japanese samurai movies, such as The Seven Samurai, such as Rashomon, Yojimbo, such as The Hidden Fortress, 
there is definitely more of a Western style to the stories and tempo. And really, you could replace the samurai, which are kind of the cool historical heroes in Japan, with cowboys, who are the cool historical heroes in America. It's unsurprising that Yojimbo was remade into A Fistful of Dollars, because they could be about either type of people. Indeed, they, uh, Sergio Leone didn't actually have the rights to uh, Yojimbo and so told Clint Eastwood to not tell anybody that it was based on it, but that's what made Clint Eastwood do it in the first place because he was a huge fan of it. So now we've got Westerners copying a Japanese director who was copying cowboy movies in the first place. But what's interesting is that in Japan, there were two types of movie in the 1950s. There was Gendai Geki, which are contemporary dramas, and Akira Kurosawa did some of those. And then there are Jidai Geki, which were costume dramas, i.e. samurai movies. And what's interesting about that is, of course, there's the word Jidai, Jedi. Okay, so Akira Kurosawa was cranking out these movies, and there was this term being used, and this is all decades before Star Wars actually happened. So why am I still going on about Akira Kurosawa? What's he got to do with Star Wars exactly? Well, he did a movie called The Hidden Fortress, and the movie starts with these two servants, these two bickering servants who basically you from from they're, they're secondary characters but they tell the story it's them who get captured and embroiled with this sort of samurai general and this princess and everybody's trying to get the princess and is any of this sounding familiar to you because basically it's the plot of star wars only rather than it being set in feudal japan it's set in a galaxy far far away okay and the two arguing servants are C-3PO and R2-D2. It's the same narrative structure, but I think when people say that Hidden Fortress is is really, or, or Star Wars is just a remake of Hidden Fortress, you are going too far with that. It, it is too much. But um, it, it's there is clearly a wink between the two. Another form of samurai link there is obviously we've got the sword fights, and you can argue that the the Jedi, the Jedi Geki, uh, the the Jedi are basically space samurai. Now, over the years, they evolved from that into more like warrior monks. But you know, the cool sword fights—it isn't a huge step to say, "Oh, that's a bit like like samurai," is it? The other thing worth mentioning is that. Um, uh, Allegedly, Toshiro Mifune was the classic actor who worked with, worked with Akira Kurosawa. Uh, he generally didn't like working in, in Western movies. He, he recognized that they just kind of weren't his thing. Um, but he was actually approached. He was George Lucas's first choice to play Obi-Wan Kenobi. And as a sort of an old mentor, sort of samurai mentor, he would have worked brilliantly as that, but he, he turned it down and Alec Guinness ended up getting it. There was even also uh, apparently conversation about him potentially being the main villain. And once you know that, you just can't get around the fact that Darth Vader's helmet, uh, now it may be that it would have been open-faced, so you could have seen Toshiro Mifune, uh, it, it, it had that all panned out. But the point is, Darth Vader's helmet's a samurai helmet. Don't believe me? Have a look at some samurai helmets online, particularly the shape of the, the sides of the helmet and back of the helmet. They are clearly based, uh, or Darth Vader's mask is clearly based on the standard headgear that a feudal Japanese uh, samurai would have been wearing. 
So you put all this together, there is far more Asian infusion going on in, in a Star Wars movie than you might first suspect. The other thing that sort of confirms all this is that Akira Kurosawa, by the 1980s, was obviously quite old, um, but he was so highly regarded by the sort of big film directors of the 1970s, including George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, etc., that that he had a bit of a late renaissance, Akira Kurosawa. He made two more uh, great colour samurai movies. One's called Kagamusha, the Shadow Warrior, it's sometimes called, and the other one is Ran, which is his version of King Lear. And those two movies are produced and basically funded by George Lucas and co. So they actually are giving a nod back to the person who taught them about cinema by helping him continue to make great cinema. And indeed, Kagamusha and Ran are both sort of considered to be sort of five star films. And Ran in particular has got some amazing battle scenes in them, which some people sort of said set the standard for cinematic battles uh, that probably wasn't surpassed until you get to Lord of the Rings. So with that in mind, there's also a wonderful, wonderful shot where George Lucas took Akira Kurosawa around the model factory, the ILM factory, uh, while he was making Empire Strikes Back. And so there's a wonderful photo of an old Akira Kurosawa beaming, sort of grinning, standing right next to a model of an Atat, which is one of the coolest photos you're ever going to see from cinema history. There we go. I think I've covered uh, Japan and the Japanese influences on, and specifically the Akira Kurosawa influences on Star Wars. However, there's the Nazis we've got to be talking about too. And it's really weird because clearly the Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The the imperial dress code and styling is very militaristic. And if you're going to go for fascist, you might as well go all in and go for kind of Nazi. And indeed... The imperial officers wouldn't look out of place uh, sitting on the top of a tiger tank in 1944. However, the weird part about the Nazi propaganda is one of the bizarre things about Hitler and the Nazis is sometimes they did things that would be counterintuitive. You'd think that they would be evil and bigoted in every and all aspects. And actually, that wasn't true. Now, none of none of this mitigates the horrific crimes against humanity they did actually carry out, okay? But for one weird thing is they had particularly good laws about uh, against animal cruelty. So you can gas Jews, but you can't be nasty to a dog, get your priorities right. But anyway, um, but one of the weird things is that uh, Hitler gave the chance for a young female uh, documentary director. Now, women can find it hard to break into movies at the best of time, but, you know, Hitler giving a chance for Lenny Reifenstahl to create a, a movie was it's just weird. It's just a weird quirk from history. But she created Triumph of Will triumphant and villain in German. If you ever get a chance to see any of it, I'm not saying that it's anything that I agree with, but if you want to talk about a beautifully shot propaganda piece that says, this is the man of our time, and look at how much power and respect he controls, well, she succeeded one, the interesting thing is some of the tracking shots, which nowadays we'd actually have a camera on like a little set of railway tracks and we'd pull it along and you get this gliding shot. That stuff didn't exist in the 1930s. So they managed to do that shot by getting the cameraman, put him on roller skates and slowly drag him along the floor. Um, but these amazing tracking shots, these amazing aerial shots, and you get to see these huge blocks of human beings standing in these perfect rectangles. The individual jewel is obliterated. We are now all part of a great mass, a great uh, organization, obviously an evil organization. But what it says without saying words is truly chilling. It is an amazingly effective piece of propaganda. And as you can tell, words don't quite do it justice. But the idea is that there's only one individual in this movie, and that is Hitler. Every, with the rest of us, we're all going to follow and we're all going to be well ordered as we do so. A horrible thing and chilling thing to say, to be sure. But strangely, that's the imagery they went for with the big celebration at the end of Star Wars A New Hope. 
And that's the rebels. The rebels are all standing in a very triumph of the will kind of series of blocks. And it's it's something that a few people have commented on. It's like, does that mean the rebels are sort of like fascists themselves? I mean, they are a military organization fighting a bigger military organization. Are they automatically the good guys? Well, clearly they're meant to be the good guys. I mean, right down to the fact that Darth, it, it, we people talk in cowboy terms about black hats versus white hats. This is a term that's still used in hacking, for heaven's sakes. But you got black hats versus white hats, or in this case, you got a guy literally dressed head to toe in black. So he's clearly the bad guy. Um, but it's interesting, this sort of slight moral ambiguity has crept in in far more recent Star Wars movies. Rogue One, there are some insinuations about assassinations carried out by the, the rebels and how they sometimes do rather dirty special ops uh, missions that are best not talked about. And there's a little element of it in um, uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi, uh, Star Wars Episode Eight, uh, with the arms dealer, where, where, where DJ showing how the arms dealer's been selling arms to both sides, making a profit. But anyway, let's not get too involved in that. But you could argue that the very beginnings of that slight moral ambiguity is when you basically have all the rebels standing there applauding in a rather Nazi setting. Sorry about that. The other weird thing about that final shot is they're all standing there sort of cheering and then they all get the medals is Chewbacca doesn't get a medal. Luke gets one. Han gets one. Chewie doesn't get one. That doesn't seem very fair to me. And there's a lot of people who've made that comment. And I'm certainly not the only one. Anyway, I digress. But there is another element of World War II that's uh, in Star Wars, which you wouldn't necessarily expect. And actually, this is starts where it starts to get me towards the area about how things changed a lot in the edit after the film was actually made. Because you've got the trench run, you've got the rebels attacking the Death Star. And of all the ways they could have shown that, they decided to have them track along this trench path along the, the ridge of the Death Stars. They're flying down there, being shot at by the various turrets. It's interesting, as they as they start the trench run, you actually get a sound effect of like cracks of thunder, which is weird in space. Uh, to be honest, any noise in space isn't going to happen because sound has to travel through air. It has to travel through a medium of some description. Well, it doesn't have to be air. It could be water as well or something, but it's the vibration of the molecules, which is what sound is. There aren't any molecules in the vacuum of space. So actually what you need to do is shut the entire sound down for the trench run, and that's more scientifically accurate. I digress. Instead, what I wanted to say is um, that trench run is specifically inspired by a World War II movie about a real uh, a series of events. It, the movie in question is The Dam Busters. And if you don't know about that, that's the real story about how the British needed to knock out a number of dams in the Ruhr Valley, this big industrial center of Germany in the, at the height of World War II. The problem was they were extremely well defended. And the further problem is, well, how do you hit a dam? You can't, I mean, if you had a series of missiles, you could fly towards the dam and launch the missiles, but they didn't have missiles that could do the damage that way. Dropping bombs straight down, well, if you're going above the dam, it's now just a very thin straight line. You're unlikely to hit that with uh, heavy bombs. So how do you hit those, those 
dams? And the answer is, it was a gentleman called Barnes Wallace who came up with this bouncing bomb. Now, lots of people think that they were spherical bombs. They weren't. They're more like barrels. But the idea was they were dropped from the RAF heavy bomber spinning. And as they hit the water of the dam, the water behind the dam, because they were spinning and going at a fast enough velocity, they would skip across the top of the water, a bit like when you skip a stone across a lake. And that's it. so they were to skip across the top of the water. And then when they hit the dam, the spinning would mean that they would force the, the bomb to go, let's say, halfway down the down the dam and then detonate. Yeah. If that sounds really, really hard, it's because it is. So you then had to fly an RAF Lancaster bomber for hours across occupied Europe without being shot down by anti-aircraft fire, without being shot down by uh, enemy night fighter planes. And you then had to get in the right uh, right angle with the with the uh, with the dams, you then had to release the bombs at the right time. You then had to hope that this never before tried tech worked. And the remarkable thing is it did. This all worked. The dams were blown. It did put a dent into German industrial output. So it's a remarkable story. But this idea of these of these bombers coming in, on these runs to sort of hit the sweet spot is basically what's going on in Star Wars at the end when they're going for the Death Star. So really, there is this whole feel, you know, the guys in the cockpits and stuff like that, it feels far more like World War II than more like modern or science fiction-y type space uh, fighter planes. Just on that point, it's a bit weird in Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi, where the opening attack is by similarly bombers that just drop bombs down onto a, a, a First Order uh, uh, dreadnought. You know, why aren't they using missiles? Why aren't they using laser cannons? Why do they have to drop these bombs just like they would do in World War Two? It's a bit weird, that one, but maybe it's another nod to the sort of the, the original influences of Star Wars. Or bad writing. I don't know. Okay, go complain to somebody else. Don't blame me. <laughs> anyway, the the point is that this bombing run is, of course, the the critical point, the absolute climax of a new hope. But it wasn't quite like that in the original edit, on the original cut of it. You see, the version of Star Wars that these directors saw in early 1977. Well, for starters, they did actually see footage of like World War Two dogfights to de denote some of the, the the chases and fights that happened in the movie. So they actually, George Lucas even acknowledged his influences there. But the interesting thing is that the reason why the rebels absolutely have to blow up the Death Star then and there is that the Death Star's about to blow up their base. That wasn't in the script. That was created later in the edit because it occurred to them that basically the attack going on the Death Star with no threat against the rebels is A, a little bit aggressive. They're just going to destroy the Death Star. And B, well, what happens if it doesn't work? They could come back next Tuesday and try again, can't they? So the idea was they needed to create a sense of urgency for this thing. And the way it worked was originally Luke was going to do so that so you get you first of all get the 
the Y-Wings going in and they fail. Then you get the uh, Red Leader going in and it impacts on the surface and it fails. Then Luke goes in and does a third run and fails. And then he does it on the fourth run. So for starters, that's way too many runs. They cut out one of the Luke runs. So now it's just Y-Wings fail, Red, Red Leader impacts on the surface, and then you get Luke saving the day. Whoopee. Um, so they cut it down from four to three runs. And then using various footage and cleverly using voiceover, once you know this, you'll realize nobody's mentioning the rebel base is in target or anything. It's only done as a voiceover and they used outtakes of various other scenes to show or to create this idea that everybody's staring at the monitors because any second now the Death Star's going to blow up the rebel base. So just by changing that in the edit, in the editing suite and adding, adding a few little bits here and there, completely changes the end of the movie and makes it all the more better. It makes it more exciting. And that's, if you like, the whole point of a movie like Star Wars. Interestingly, the same kind of thing happened right at the beginning. You may remember at the opening of A New Hope, you've got the little blockade runner flying away and you've got the Star Destroyer chasing it and there's this sort of shooting backwards and forwards. That entire scene, including then, you know, Darth Vader coming onto the ship and the stormtroopers blasting away and help me Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope and all this kind of stuff and R2 and C-3PO getting into the escape pods, blah, 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 blah. All of that you see happening. But in the original, it kept cutting to what Luke was doing on Tatooine. There are some, some you know, entire scenes. You may remember the guy with the dark uh, moustache. He, he's one of the guys who attacks the Death Star and blows up. And in the extended version, you get one brief scene of him just before they attack the Death Star. So we realize, oh, that's one of Luke's friends and it adds a bit more. But he's referred to as already have gone in the movie. But actually, you get to see him and Luke having conversations um, while the fight's going on. So weirdly, George Lucas thought it would be really exciting to cut away from a really exciting opening space battle to two guys talking about what their plans were for the future and, and basically going on errands. Again, completely sapping the momentum from the movie. So that was all cut. You can still find bits of it uh, out there on YouTube. You know, and, and these the, the scenes themselves are fine, but you realise... There's nothing there that you're going to miss when you take it out, okay? So, that, you know, by taking out some scenes and just condensing it and making it a huge battle at the beginning, and then by, at the end, making creating this sense of urgency by suddenly creating this scenario where the Death Star is going to blow up the Rebel base, greatly improves the two great bookends of Star Wars. And don't forget, the whole thing, meanwhile, is influenced by 1950s samurai movies and an awful lot of Nazi propaganda. <laughs> don't say this podcast isn't at least uh, diverting, okay? There's an awful lot going on at any given time. But that is Neon's take on Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. And, you know, if you like this one... 
tell me about it. We'll see, I'll see if I can dig up some more history links for some of the other Star Wars movies. You know, I do always want to bring it back to actual history rather than just sort of doing reviews of movies you've already seen 300 times. But hopefully you'll find this all, uh, you found this all a bit of fun. And, you know, this is what we do here. This is all about the fact that we get a great bit of pop culture and I don't think you can get more poppy or culture-y than Star Wars and then throw in some history whether you like it or not thanks very much for listening this has been one of my favourites gotta say uh, obviously keep looking out there'll be another podcast of history goodness soon Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.